Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, and CEO of PeopleRain, an AI platform for IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe to our newsletter at peoplerain.io slash podcast. People reign like the reign of a queen or king, R-E-I-G-N dot I-O slash podcast. And you'll get bonus content and special insights from our guests. Now on this show, we talk to entrepreneurs and investors, journalists, CIOs. We rarely speak with anyone who has spent as much time in the trenches as today's guest. The future of work is all about the fusion of humans with machines, blending intuition and judgment with automated decisions. In fact, just this week, leaders of four tech behemoths were grilled on Capitol Hill about the role of automation in the future of technology, but also about the ethical implications of AI. Expect much more of that uh, in the near future. Frank Knipfer is the chief enterprise architect at Alcor Solutions. He spent more than 30 years educating organizations about the future of technology. Brent's been a part of all the cataclysmic tech shifts that we discuss on this show. Client server, web, mobile, cloud, now AI. We've known each other for years. I love seeing Brent light up a room when he's brainstorming how to use AI with customers. We thought we'd, uh, we'd record a version of one of those conversations today. Brent, excellent uh, having you on the show. First, why don't you share with our audience a little bit about your background? Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've started my career as a hardcore research and development microelectronics engineer. Uh, I was defining the manufacturing technologies for IBM to exist five and 10 years in the future. It was a fantastic job. Then I took uh, eight year sabbatical in a Peace Corps like assignment under a vow of poverty with the IRS and chose to do that at 25. And, and I'd still be doing that if I didn't uh, get happily married and end up with four children. So I had to reinvent myself. I ran my own managed service business for 12 years and began a focus on enterprise package software as a solution architect and program manager. And I ran things under the motto, the ultimate job is when you've engineered yourself out of a job. Still one that I believe in. I then moved into enterprise service management for the last 22 years, in essence, doing the same thing. It's an amazing space because some of the things that I solutioned decades ago, we're still doing today because people forget names change, acquisitions, divestures, uh, events like the pandemic now are affecting everyone. But solutioning to me is something really simple. It's become simpler for me as life goes, as time's gone on. I, I play Sesame Street, maybe some remember here uh, that segment, which one of these things goes together. I just squint my eyes and then you look at this space and you say, if these things don't go here, then they have to go no matter what. And you need to drive people in the solution to get to that uh, result. So AI first driven is certainly is uh, new and it supports my current motto, which is leap to the future. And uh, as a you know, chief architect now, my role is to drive growth and provide solid guidance to our clients. How has the pandemic changed your personal work-life balance and specifically, how have, how, has your work, how have your work patterns adapted? Well, I made a major change because in the middle of the pandemic, I took my current role. 
Uh, and I've always been sort of counterintuitive to the economic and global cycles uh, that have occurred through the decades. So by focusing on organizing and defining a business model that will significantly change how, you know, a, my firm's market share and the value proposition we have in 2021 is where I'm focused right now. So I've had more time and energy to do that, which is great. And we've been hiring straight through this pandemic. We're currently working on the second set of 20 new hires. I've gone to no travel. I wasn't really traveling except, you know, within the Metroplex of Chicago. Uh, I got more home projects done, of course. I've had more time with family visiting uh, for longer periods of time. New enjoyment in gardening takes me back to my childhood. Uh, working, working out a lot more uh, with aspirations to get back to playing jazz trombone again soon. So far, the family uh, is surviving with no cabin fever. You are a renaissance man. Now, when you're at your best, you're in, in front of an audience on a whiteboard, you know, brainstorming. How do you compensate for the lack of FaceTime? How do you reinvent your, uh, your core skill set? Uh, turning on the camera, doing that a lot more, more than ever. You, you know, we take a lead now in meetings. You know, if one person turns on the video camera, then it just, you know, I think it's become almost a habit now that everyone turns it on. Uh, so that is one way, you know, actually get to see people's faces still. Uh, learning every collaboration tool out there, right? We're, we're using many more of them now. Zoom, go to meeting, you know, you name the tool teams. We're working out, you know, uh, how to do things more. Uh, pick up the phone. I think we're picking up the phone more. Uh, I'm even writing letters these days, not for work, but you know, for personal reasons. I'm more productive because I don't spend three hours a day getting dressed, walking to the train and traveling back and forth four days a week to downtown Chicago. So it, overall, I think it's positive. On the negative side, of course, there's only that triangle between your workspace, the refrigerator and the bathroom. Uh, and sometimes we don't find the bedroom you know, as often as they need to. So that's an ongoing challenge. Uh, I think that we have to, within our space at home, we have to become much better about the boundaries of work in time and allocate the right number of hours. You know, where they happen is much more flexible, but we still need to realize we, we need the, the time for personal creativity. We need the time for recovery. We need the time with the people who are important. I can never decide these days if I'm working from home or living in the office somewhere in between. Now, if a, if a client comes to you and says, uh, we want help defining our AI strategy, what does that mean and, and, and how do you guide the, that conversation? Well, I don't find clients often coming asking about AI, but the thing to recognize is that AI is on the agenda of every board. Of directors. It's, it's in the performance plans and objectives of leadership. So when we recognize that, it's about letting the machine do the work first. That's where, where I try to go to. You know, we're not trying to replace anything or replace people. We're all just using another tool, another machine. And so let the machine do it first. I think that's the mind shift. That's the paradigm shift. Uh, let a second, let AI assist. So it may have information for us. We should be letting it assist when, and at least looking, right? It's like the reference book that's just popping up, you know, like a holodeck deck right there in front of you all the time. And third, it can, we can help AI get better. We as humans have the opportunity to help the machine get smarter for the value of the entire organization. So it can help in self-service by letting, you know, we push so much work to self-service. 
AI can help that time become more productive. You know, we don't want doctors spending 30 minutes a day in self-service when it could be five minutes because it helps fills out the form or gives you the self-help answer. Uh, for the first contact person, you know, that first person that's getting touched to help somebody, it's giving them intelligence of the entire organization at their fingertips. And for that final resolver, it helps them to get it right and then tell all the rest of us what we don't know or what we haven't written down yet or that we didn't realize how what we just worked on was touching some other important things in the business. That mantra, let the machines do the work first, is intriguing. And I imagine to a lot of our listeners, it's intimidating. What that sounds like you're saying is that the machines will replace the humans. Uh, is, is that the case or are there ways for machines to augment or supplement humans? Well, uh, the, my analogy that I, my th fallback analogy right now is the screwdriver, right? It's been around since the 15th century, but the battery powered screwdriver has only been around since 1980. But I just challenge everyone who's listening to this podcast from the first time you ever had one, we know exactly how great that tool is. And all it is doing is assisting us. Nothing's stopping us. In some special cases, we need that tiny little eyeglass screwdriver. We need the short stubby one. Or I only got two screws to do. I get the screwdriver and I twist it by hand. Maybe I just want the exercise. Maybe that's just the tool conveniently sitting there. But if I'm going to go build a deck, I'm getting my battery powered screwdriver and I love it. The machine is helping me. It's assisting me. I'm focused on my design. I'm focused on the volume of work I can get out. I'm focused on the tough problems, right? Those tight spaces, not on the repetitive, you know, screwing down these 40 boards. Now at its core, AI is fundamentally a series of data challenges. And as you and I know from working with clients together, uh, oftentimes the biggest impediment to effective AI is data hygiene. To what extent are you concerned about data biases being introduced into algorithms that then impact the accuracy of decisions? And kind of how do you, how do you communicate that to customers that think it's just kind of, uh, you know, a magic wand? Well, I long, for a long time have wanted to write a white paper, bad data is worse than no data. Because if you have no data, smart humans will go find the information they need to make a decision. But if you have bad data, work, bad things happen, right? We act on it. So these tire, you know, smart tire th uh, things, I hate those things because when they go bad, they're telling you your tire's either flat or it's full and it's not, right? Because it's, it's feeding you bad data. The other, the other thing I would, I would say is, you know, pe people think AI and most AI engines need a huge volume of data or a large number of transactional history. Uh, I think we are working creatively together, uh, people right in Alcor, to, to change that by orders of magnitude. And the simple way to do that is to take your best humans and have them make the data perfect. If you have the AI model on perfect data, well, all the fields filled in with the correct answers, then you're making the machine uh, know the right answers. So when you're dealing with just the general data, then by, by default, you have wrong data and wrong answers in there and the machine's taking those into account. That's why you get confidence levels of 80% and 75%. If you made the same data model on perfect data, you'd have confidence levels at 90, 95% and then apply that to all the data. So take a sample, 
much smaller numbers than these 10,000 records, 30,000 records, put smart people on it to clean it up, then run your models. And uh, so I think the focus around data is, you know, you need to understand the data quality is about two things, accuracy and completeness. And we should be looking at targets of 90% accurate, 98% complete. Complete means the, the field has something. It may not be right. Accurate means we know it's the right piece of information in there. So if we focus on the data quality, uh, which you need to have regardless, and you should be doing AI on fields, which got to be right first. Those are the first places you want to do your AI on anyway. So you should be going through there and making sure that the data is complete, at least the ones you're running your models on, and then use AI to make sure data gets into all the required. And the CMDB, the uh, Configuration Management Database, is it's just a technology. But as we have this conversation about the importance of data hygiene for AI, there are a lot of interesting ways that a, uh, a mature CMDB can influence an AI strategy. Um, I've heard you talk passionately about the importance of CMDB. Talk about what, what you think the relationship is between CMDB and AI. Well, the configuration management database is that, right? It's a database and configuration items mean that they're important and they have a relationship. So one, they, they're important to the business, to the service that that's being provided and they are, uh, have relationships. So when things are related, right, we understand that just like we, when you go to the doctor, we give them symptoms, right? But the doctor looks at the collection of symptoms plus collects their own data and then they come to a diagnosis. Well, that's what's happening with the CMDB. What people are reporting the self-service, what they're telling the service desk, what, you know, the technician may be seeing, you know, on lights and et cetera, events. Well, those many times are just the symptoms. Then we need to look at what the, the solution is, what things are related, do the diagnosis, get to our operational data stores, and then we'll get to the right answer. And the, the configuration management isn't something that does something for the business. It's a servant. There's a, there's a reason why we're using this data. It doesn't do anything on its own. It serves uh, information so we restore service as fast as possible. It provides the, the information so that I know all of the people that I need to give this solution to or uh, roll this change uh, across to, not just the one person who reported it or the one business unit that act, acted on it. When we look at the configuration management as important data that has relationships, then it's just a matter of, I, I actually find that I want to pour more and more data in there. But we need to be careful that the database also is really an index, right? It needs to have an index of the important fields out to other master data sources or operational data sources. When organizations are just starting to think about the right tasks that are good candidates for automation, what are some of the questions that they should be asking? Uh, start with the different personas, right? I would start with your users, you know, and say, you know, how can I dramatically, you know, where's the places I can most directly impact their productivity or their experience or their satisfaction? We're all after the consumer great experience, but in business, it's more challenging because I don't have typically the rights like Facebook or Instagram of just changing the UI and you know we're just all become accustomed as consumers to take it or leave it. Business is still not that way and probably will not, not be that way. So we have more accountability for informing people of, of helping them. But to recognize that, that we're gonna to continue to push more and more work 
to be self-service, meaning I do it. We still have a long way to go to make it like a bank kiosk, right? No one gives us any instructions. We go anywhere in the world, we just walk up and start punching keys and we all manage to get our money. So the next persona, those who are providing service and, and you know, I think we collapse this as much as possible by saying, if we could just route the work to the right person the first time, that's a huge value proposition for AI. But at the end of the day, we're cutting out, you know, a lots of latency, lots of time. And I use the analogy, you know, the great thing about stores is instant satisfaction, right? There is no status because I get the item, I go up, I pay for it. Wait, I don't need status. I only need status if there's a time delay from the time I ask for something until I get it. Huge opportunity for AI is to dramatically collapse that time. So now I, I'm eliminating calls, texts, chats about that are simply information only, what's happening, where are things at? That, that takes a lot of noise out of the system. When you take time out, people are happier. People aren't worried about it. They know I'm gonna get my, you know, my things in a day or, or three days, right? People only start complaining because something they expect in a day or three is now gone past seven days and said, why do I need to follow up? So I think those, you know, just try to simplify things as much as possible. Let's just talk about users. Let's talk about resolvers. Let's talk about customers. So there's probably a whole nother world where AI is going to eventually help the customers, the one, the, the people who are paying for the services. So we're going to get, get to the point where it's becoming a tool that's providing insights and more information. Uh, I think it's not there yet, but it's a place that's going to help people give to provide a way that we're not doing status meetings anymore. We're making progress decision-making meetings and we're, and decision-making information is going to be presented to those who, have the power to make the decision. The information finds us. We don't necessarily have to find it. Uh, along those lines, you and I were on site with a customer and management uh, put together a leaderboard showing uh, the correlation between the live service agents, uh, their MTTR, and uh, the number of AI-based recommendations for solutions that they accepted. And it turned out it was almost a perfect correlation that the more AI-based recommendations you accepted, the lower your MTTR was as a service desk agent. This completely contradicts the notion of uh, AI taking over jobs or, um, you know, kind of the bot apocalypse. This is just automated decisions making humans better. Um, why do you think that notion is still controversial or, you know, you, you lived through that like I did. What was your reaction from that? Back to the illustration of the power screwdriver, right? It's resistance to change, right? Change is hard for people. So until you personally experience the benefits, you're going to have that whole range of early adopters, you know, those followers and, and laggards. I mean, that's just the way that uh, it's a bell curve, right? So we're trying to compress. You're not going to change the learning curve. You're not going to change the bell curve, but you can compress them. So we all gonna go through a learning curve. So we're just gonna try and get more people to go through at the same time. We're gonna try and get more people to have a shorter time through that. So we've got, there, there is a lot around adoption, utilization, uh, vitality training. We have new people coming in. Did they get the same you know, change enablement? Probably not, right? Unless we're paying attention to that. But I think a lot of it is show and tell, right? Uh, it, it, 
you have to, just because you're presented the recommendations doesn't mean you recognize the benefit of, oh, I should actually stop, look over here, and maybe I select from here. So there are things that we're talking about doing there, which is saying, let's pick a confidence level and we're not going to present the recommendation. We're going to just populate the field. Now you change the, the mechanism. So I've already given you an answer. You have the opportunity to reject my answer. Maybe the analogy is, we, you know, one thing that's going to significantly help is we turn people into editors, not authors, right? Or we turn them into publishers, not editors. So if you think about those three roles, an author has to creatively think, write it down, get the grammar right. The editor has the right to modify and change it, but they can't really change the theme, right? And then the publisher gets to decide what the author actually gets to see, right? And typically those happen in serial order, uh, separated in that writing world. So I think we got to think about ways in which we follow that mode, right? Don't make people authors, try to get them to be editors. Now we can take the step forward, which says, just look at it. All you got to do is push the publish button, right? If you like the fields and what AI has presented to you, then just hit submit and move on. And once they start to realize that AI is looking at the entire intelligent organization, so of course, we know for a fact, so some of it is helping people understand, it's known already that if you get 75 people together, give them any problem, they are smarter than any expert in the world, one person. And that's simplistically what AI is doing. So I think we got to get people comfortable. They have to experience it. But once they make that shift or through the learning curve, understand that they are just like in the pandemic, how many, much of the population of the world has all of a sudden learned conferencing, social media. They were forced into it, but they're all doing great now. And we're three or four months in. So polish your crystal ball. Let's say it's five years in the future. What are some of the things that we're doing that are commonplace at work in five years that today might seem like they're straight out of a science fiction movie or they're even silly? I've got two pet peeves of mine. I've, I've actually dwelled on uh, what, what have you know, spent some time on this, on one of them for years. Uh, but the first is the fact that we tolerate responding to ad hoc texts, notifications, and emails in 2020. I, I just can't believe it. Why would I let anyone in the world randomly call me, right? So now we have blocking software coming on the phones. Uh, we've had the concept of you can get on the not, you know, call, do not mail list. So I believe we'll look back and say, why did I let all those sources randomly interrupt my focus and the opportunity to be productive and see good for my hard work? Instead, we're going to see aggregation of these things, right? So think about the workplace. Why should I randomly getting, be getting requests for approvals as a manager? No, I, I should just start to Pazlov dog train the entire organization that says, why don't you just set on your calendar or I just presented, you know, I'm just going to aggregate these and present to you in two 15 minute segments a day and you stop and you just clear the plate, right? So the concept of an efficient worker, right? Just pile those things in different piles on your desk and the great time management motif, which is touch things once. So that one is just, I don't understand it. And, and the second one that I thought about much longer is the idea of self-service service catalog. Today, Self-service is like a soda machine or a candy machine, and the business is waiting around for a user to come up and buy something or request something. That, that is not a smart use of the technology that capability have. We're gonna turn that around, and the business is gonna push out the request into the shopping cart of people, and that's gonna become the work queue of every user. 
just like we have assignment groups. It is the assignment group of the future, I believe, and that we will see people not going to the catalog make requests, but being notified to go to your shopping cart because you have work to do and that's going to be, or you have new tools and services. So simple as a hey, salespeople, they're going to get a thing in the shopping cart says, okay, here's your new phone. Here's your new laptop. Here's your productivity software. All of these are retired. Here's your new bag. Here's the training sessions you're signed up for. Why? Because we know that this is the thing that's going to make all of us the next level of productive, get all us talking on the same page. It's going to, you know, drive the growth and scale of the company. Simplistically, we have all the technology. We're just using it the wrong way. We're waiting for people to come up to the candy machine instead of turning it around and saying, I know that we're going to roll out phones every three years and laptops every one year. So while I already have the plans and everything. I don't need anyone requesting to get a laptop or a phone. Today, every company, right? You have to know when your laptop warranty expired and you make the request. The company's not proactively doing it. I believe we're going to look back and go, what were we not thinking? Brent, we're going to have lots more opportunities, I hope, to uh, discuss these trends as they come to fruition. Uh, we're bad out of time, but I gotta get this one last question in for you. So uh, I've told you before, uh, I, I need you as my haberdasher. You, uh, you always seem to have an outrageous outfit whenever I see you. You, you gotta tell, tell our audience, uh, what's your favorite outfit and, uh, and, and why? Uh, well, uh, my new one. So it, it was the baby blue uh, satin tux uh, that I had handmade bespoke for my oldest daughter's wedding. But my new one is waiting for a debut. Uh, we missed uh, ServiceNow Knowledge 20, so I'm hoping to make the big stage. I have got a supple white leather Western crocodile, uh, accented white crocodile accented Western jacket. I've got my white crocodile boots, my belt. Uh, I've got my bolo tie. I've got the uh, Western Southwestern U.S. themed shirt and the Western pants. Yeah, and I've got the uh, uh, the, the finest uh, beaver belly uh, cowboy hat to go with it. So that that's the one that's ready to uh, knock the socks off the world. Worth the price of admission. You send me a photo that's going in the show notes. I've got the photo already for you, Dan. Man, you can rock crushed baby blue velvet like nobody I know. And th there you have it. That is the... Uh, the effervescent Brent Knipfer. Uh, we're out of time for today. If you, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the newsletter. It is peoplereign.io slash podcast. People reign like the reign of a queen or a king.io slash podcast. I'm your host, Dan Turchin. Thank you for joining us. Back here again next week with a fascinating guest.